This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So it doesn't exactly feel like a holiday in Cambridge, just so you know. Okay? <laughs> There's this horrible time when you're about to give a talk, and um, it's a bit like getting into the aeroplane and the doors close, and you know, that is it now. <laughs> and when you give a talk, you realise not only that is it now, but that you're the pilot, and uh, you just hope you know where you're going. And you look at all your notes and you think, oh, this sort of made sense at some point. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm giving a talk on Shakyamuni, which is the meditation practice that I took when I was uh, ordained. But also uh, Nagashuri took it, and Sadaraja took it as well. So there's three of us in the room. So I'm in a doubly hot seat uh, with other professionals in the room, as it were. (laughs) And uh, actually, um, on a recent retreat at Adistana, um, you know, Adistana, when you're holding a lot of responsibility, often your meditation is full of thoughts. I mean, probably you guys, it's not like that. <laughs> but actually, for me, it's just a lot of thoughts and a lot of um, concerns going on. I'm just processing. And uh, this, this woman that came on retreat wrote, wrote me this note recently. She said, Dear Sadhmandi, uh, when I see you meditate, it's as if there's this very old man beside you and he's protecting you in your practice. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's Shakyamuni. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if that's Bhante. And, um, uh, and I thought, well, actually, why not just meditate as if I have a very old man next to me that's just protecting me in my practice, rather than thinking I'm just burdened by all these thoughts and things like that. So it's just a very different approach. Um, so I was, I was very touched by this little note. These are the sort of things that you receive at different times. Yes, and uh, yeah, I'm just aware, you know, Bante died just a few months ago and um, I saw him just a week, just six days before he died. And at some point in my communication with him, I said to him, um, oh, I'm not very confident sometimes about teaching. I'm not very confident about what I need to say. And he said, Sudden Andy, I don't know why. I said, you're not a rational thing. He said, hmm, true. <laughs> That's the kind of conversations we had. So, um, so this, 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 this evening, I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, Shakyamuni, which uh, is the historical Buddha. And I expect most of you in this room know about him, so... Maybe I don't need to say anything. <laughs> but I will say a few things. And um, I'm going to say something a bit about the historical Buddha and then something about Kalyanamitra and Shakyamuni as a Kalyanamitra. And then something about the symbolism that I've connected with through the meditation practice, through the sadhana. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Okay. Yeah, and another thing is, um, 
I've, uh, the last few years I've been doing a lot of teaching around uh, Satipatthana and the Honeyball Sutta, which is all about um, really the structure of mind and the construction of views, uh, the construction of thoughts. So it's a lot of process, um, sort of subtle processes that are going on in us all the time. And it means experience gets broken down into kind of named segments and you identify them and you understand what's going on there. And to prepare for this talk, I was reading a number of um, Sangharachita's lectures, old, very, very old lectures on the Buddha. He's not doing that at all. He's just talking about very broad strokes in your spiritual life. And what um, Chakyamuni's path was as a Buddha, as somebody becoming enlightened, in very broad terms. And it just reminded me of how one of my conversations with him, he said to me, uh, we grow as plants, Sadhanandi. We grow much more as plants than we realise. Uh, it's very organic and natural, and people don't realise that. And I thought, but through all this deconstruction process, or looking at Satipatthana and the details of everything, you lose contact with, actually, I'm a plant that needs nourishment, needs rain, needs sun. And he often talked in those terms. So I was very struck by how... He was drawing that out in the Buddha's life, just that some of the natural um, broad strokes of the Buddha's life in his uh, lead up to enlightenment. So, um, yeah. So another thing is uh, recently I was on. I've been uh, I've been around Subuti. Uh, Subuti's been at Adhisthana for the last two and a half weeks. I said to him at one point, "It's like life next to a very strong wind." that's just blowing the whole time. <laughs> quite, quite often I feel very inadequately dressed. <laughs> but then I look and I see this windmill and he's turning the sails of the windmill and I think, oh, well, it's fantastic as well, as well as it's hard to sort of stay with, yeah? Uh, anyway, he said this lovely thing in one of his um, introductions to a talk that he was giving. He said, um, you live your life in relation to the larger story. So I'm going to use this as a bit of a kind of motto or a theme. You live your life in relation to the larger story. And I think, actually, uh, as our spiritual life develops a momentum, we begin to sort of connect in more and more strongly with that larger story. And we're living our life more and more aligned and closer to that bigger story. So all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are representing a much bigger story. And at some point... Our story and their story aligns together, yeah? In a way, that's when we begin to think of ourselves as Buddhists, I think. So, for the historical, the story of the historical Buddha, the story that I've aligned myself with, the bigger story, is uh, enlightenment is possible for me. That's as simple as that. Enlightenment is possible for me. And I've had periods in my life where I felt a very strong conviction of that not simply out of reading the books, but as I knew the way I was growing, I could see the processes in me, enlightenment was possible for me. So that's the bigger story. And uh, Siddhartha, uh, the Buddha, as he was born, uh, living in India two and a half thousand years ago, he had a sense of there being a larger story, basically. And he went out and looked for it. And something kept him to, to that sort of seeking. Something kept him to that path. 
his own inner um, flame. I think Padmavadra once gave a series of talks called saying the Buddha had an inner flame. That flame, uh, keeping the initiative in his life, there's something more to life than this. So he travels around India uh, uh, until the age of 35. Through many different practices, he awakens and becomes the Buddha, as we know him, enlightened, awake. And this is taking place in India when a spiritual life is very, very um, alive in the culture. I'm not sure it's quite so alive now, but it would be possible to walk out of your hut or wherever you will be sleeping and find people following the spiritual life, dressed in certain kind of clothing. You'd recognise them on the streets. Uh, well, not streets, but not on you. And um, it would be part of the kind of environment in a way. So when the Buddha uh, experiences this experience of becoming awake or enlightened, he begins walking and walking around India, teaching, um, meeting people, and talking to people about what his experience has been. And under that uh, influence of the Buddha, uh, along with the Buddha's presence, people begin to have exactly the same experience of him. Only they've received it from a teacher. They've received the influence from somebody else, whereas he's done it through his own. So we learn through the books and everything that this experience of becoming enlightened is uh, described in many ways. Often this quality of freedom, freedom from everything that holds us back, freedom from limitations, a victory over our clashes, our poisons, our mental poisons. Um... Freedom, the end of all suffering. This is something I've thought about quite a bit. What does it mean to end all suffering? Because obviously if you stub your toe, that still hurts. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Enlightenment doesn't make a difference to that. It's mm-hmm. good to know, isn't it? So what, what does it make a difference to? And this is the sort of work that we need to do for our own awakening experience. What are we free from in terms of suffering? When the Buddha says that Dharma ends all suffering, what does that mean for us? So we're in that experience, we're accessing unbounded love, <coughs> compassion, wisdom, energy, um, clarity. Now if we can think of this process um, of having two paths, well Bhante calls it two paths, a path of vision, a path of transformation. And um, the path of vision is like um, a sort of a light. It's like a flash where you begin to see things very, very differently. I've had that through processes of faith where I realised with deep conviction that enlightenment is possible for me. That's a flash of the path of vision. I've also had it in pujas where I've heard a particular reading and I've suddenly known on a very deep level, I know that. And uh, I've been moved to tears, and then it's gone again. But over a while, those those moments begin to add up to something. But also what it begins to add up to more and more is the path of transformation. I think in the the Dhammapada, we get this line, something like, drop by drop. You know, the water urn is filled with water, drop by drop. 
a person is filled up with um, good qualities if they practice the Dharma. Yeah? So drop by drop, we're making a difference. Little by little. So this is the path of transformation. And really, the biggest vision that we can have about our lives is to always be on the path of transformation, really. So the Buddha's path leading up to his awakened state, to that moment of enlightenment, uh, is made up of a lot of different steps. And Bhante sort of plots this out very beautifully in different talks. Uh, so one area is of the going forth. So the Buddha sets out from his family, goes forth from, from the group, from the family. And uh, this is a very interesting area for us. What does going forth mean for us in our lives? So it means like overcoming group attitudes, overcoming group conditioning. Uh, it means overcoming the voices of the group that we've got going on in our head. I've been thinking about this quite a bit around all this stuff around Brexit. Like, I meet people who've got very strong opinions about Brexit, and I thought, oh, I don't really have a strong opinion. And I realise it's because I don't have enough information to know what to think, basically. And so many people know what they think without any information. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed that? <laughs> and what is that? You know, what is that? That's just, a lot of the time, it's group behaviour. Yeah, it's just group behaviour. It's, it's just that we belong to a certain setup which believes this certain, this view, believes this political view. It believes this idea about this person or these people or whatever. It's very difficult to step free of uh, group attitudes. I think uh, sometimes it's sometimes when we've got initiative with our own thoughts we begin to realise we're having original thought. I don't mean nobody's thought it before, but for us, suddenly it hasn't gone through the normal group behaviour, the normal sort of habitual thing. It's like suddenly we've got a thought that's got a, fr a freshness to it that belongs to our own experience. Okay? And that's when we're standing more as an individual, standing more as an individual and less just as... Um, repeating the received information that's all around us through politics through the media um, yeah I went through art school and you really understand what media and what, what uh, advertising can do when you go through art school you're taught that quite strongly I remember being with um, one of my friends once and we were looking at adverts in a, in a magazine and there was a, an advert for a very very expensive watch and I said, look at this, look at this advertising. It just convinces you that these watches are the best, you know, hundreds of pounds. And the person who I was talking to said, I have one of these watches. So I said, well, why? Why do you have that watch? And I said, well, it is the best. <laughs> very, very interesting to sort of uh, really play around with how much we, you know, what is our own thoughts? Where do we stand alone? And do we stand alone at all? There's, um, actually, there's a lovely, lovely um, essay by Bante called The Voice Within, and it describes how difficult it is to hear your own inner voice amongst the noise of media, advertising, politics, 
family, uh, whatever. So the Buddha stood free more and more of those voices. He then practiced meditation under some very um, significant teachers of the time, and he got very good. He was an ideal student. He learned the practices. He um, worked his way up through the ranks, and he excelled many of the other disciples and became eventually as good as them. And eventually they said to him, you're as good as us. Why don't you share leadership of this sangha? And he thought, mm, no, nope, that isn't, that hasn't quite touched the spot. Yeah. I've still got work to do, and if I just do this, I won't be doing the work that needs to be done. And Bhante talks about this in terms of um, overcoming spiritual, uh, well, overcoming ambition and overcoming spiritual complacency. And he connects the two of them together, which I find very interesting. He says, um, if you're spiritually ambitious, in the sense of seeking a position of spiritual leadership, you know, like becoming chair of Adistana, (laughs) you are likely to become spiritually complacent, unless you have Ratnagosha in your life. (laughs) Similarly, if you're spiritually complacent, you will tend to seek a position of spiritual leadership by way of compensation for your lack of real spiritual effort. So it's very interesting, these two things being together. Spiritual ambition and the connection with that and complacency. You want to sort of strive, but you don't always want to do the work. So you want to find something out there that tells everybody, signals to everybody, you've done the work. <laughs> and uh, once, you've, once you've got that position, relax, because uh, from now on, you're seen as somebody who's spiritually attained something, and now you can just settle back onto your lows. Yeah. So this is a very interesting area for us. Uh, when do you settle for less? than you're able to accomplish, as it were. When do you settle for not quite applying yourself? Sometimes it's going to be in quite small details. Like, where could you take communication a little bit further? Or where could you um, take your meditation a little bit further? We're so easygoing in so many ways, aren't we? I know we try and give the impression that we're working very hard. And sometimes we are working very hard in certain areas. but often it's not really on the spiritual level. It's just busy. And being busy sometimes covers our tracks. We can look like we're working very hard when we're being busy. But are we really doing what we need to do? So just check in with yourself about that. Um, yeah, let's just think. Yeah, well, just look, just see if there's somewhere where, what would it, what would it mean for you to just keep turn the gas up a little bit in your life in different ways? And if you don't know, is there somebody who you could ask that might know? Yeah. And then, do you dare risk asking? <laughs> So 
so another thing that Buddha did was he practiced very uh, austere self-mortification, well, austerities, which I doubt many of us do very much. I think what we think of as being austere is not having cake with our flat white coffee in Costa. <laughs> uh, so, um, he, you know, he, be, he practiced it to a very extreme uh, state and became very fa- famous in this and um, had disciples following him in that. And at some point he realises he's no nearer to enlightenment. He's no nearer to waking up just because he's starving to death. He's no nearer to waking up just because he's sitting in the midday sun, um, sweating and not eating and everything like that. And that's what he's trying to do. He's not, he's not trying to gather disciples around him. He's not trying to do some showy display of self-mortification. He's trying to do something else. He's aligned with a much bigger story than that. And this isn't doing it. So he has to do something which all of us find very, very difficult to do. <coughs> he has to admit he's making a mistake. He has to admit that he's just invested a huge amount of time, a huge amount of effort in something which is a bit of a cul-de-sac. It's quite a, a blow to our pride when we have to admit we've made a mistake or that what we've been doing for, for quite a long time isn't working. So the Buddha had to do that. So at this point, you see, he's not invested in... Um, trying to be right he's invested in the path of transformation so there that's an interesting area for us when do we stand more on the being right path being on the comfortable path and when do we stand on the path of transformation you might know that for yourself when do we want to um, when do we not want to admit that something isn't working uh, when do we want, not want to admit that um, we're maybe not getting it right or that something's not adding up in ourselves, something like that. Yeah. And can we be quite honest about that? Because the Buddha was just having to be very honest and very public about that. Then he had to face people's disappointment, which is another kind of big it's a trouble it's a trouble to face people's disappointment Um, yeah I've sometimes thought that when people have got very disappointed in this Buddhist movement like disappointed in Bhante disappointed in Tri Ratna I think well yes we are disappointing aren't we a lot of the time we are just disappointing to somebody and uh, in a way what does it mean to be disappointed? Basically, it's not enough just to stay in disappointment. You have to move on. You have to move on from that. So the Buddha at this point uh, confronts his sense of self-worth, his pride, and goes against the normal views that are on a- around him, which is that asceticism and renunciation is good, and he is- accepts food, he accepts help. And he faces um, his disciples' dis- disappointment. Yeah. So this is him on the path of transformation. Uh, he's gradually dissolving limitations, dissolving the fetters through this path. And 
eventually when he sits under the Bodhi tree, uh, there's something ready for him. There's something ready for him to completely break through. He's done all the work, and that takes place under the Bodhi tree. So I've got this lovely, um, lovely reading, which convinc- uh, yeah, which I'll just read. It's one of Vasubandhu's four factors. All Buddhas in the ten quarters of the past, of the future, and of the present, when they first started on their way to enlightenment, were not quite free from passions and sins any more than we are at present. But they finally succeeded in attaining the highest enlightenment and became noblest beings. All the Buddhas, by the strength of their inflexible spiritual energy, were capable of attaining perfect enlightenment. If enlightenment is attainable at all, why should we not attain it? All the Buddhas, erecting high the torch of wisdom through the darkness of ignorance and keeping awake an excellent heart, submitted themselves to penance and mortification and finally emancipated themselves from the bondage of the triple world. Following their steps, we too could emancipate ourselves. All the Buddhas, the noblest kind of, type of mankind, successfully crossed the great ocean of birth and death and of passions and sins, why then, we being creatures of intelligence, could also cross the sea of transmigration? All the Buddhas, manifesting great spiritual power, sacrificed the possessions, body and life for the attainment of awakening, and we too could follow their noble examples. So I wanted to read that because, although it's a bit wordy, uh, there was a point where I read one of that, that factor, Vasubandhu's four factor, and I knew I was to completely convinced that enlightenment was possible, if only I made the effort. So we live our life in relation to the larger story, enlightenment is possible, if only we make the effort. So I'm just wondering, just as a quick mind experiment, if, what's the road out here called? New Market Road. Road. Okay, so New Market Road is a centre of disbelief, if you can imagine that. That's where you go and stand when you know enlightenment isn't possible. And this little place, just beyond this window, the Buddhist Centre Courtyard Sanctuary, whatever that's called, that is where you stand if you believe, if, you're, you know, if you've got a conviction that enlightenment is possible. And here in this shrine room, you stand if you're somewhere in the middle. So just on an intuitive level, where are you standing right now? So who's standing out near New Market? Anybody? Yes. (laughs) That's fine. So... uh, Have you got any sense at all of what, uh, what it would feel like to feel more uh, conviction that the Enlightenment was possible? When you say possible, do you mean possible generally or possible for me? 
Let's play a harder card. Possible <laughs> for you. Oh, well, I'm definitely out there. Okay. <laughs> what um, would it feel like to feel it's not so impossible? Um, it would feel, it would feel, it would feel great. It would feel great. Yeah. Okay. All right then. Okay. Well, let's just try. Okay. So who's somewhere in the middle here? Anyone? Oh, a few of you. Right. So somebody want to say anything about why they're standing here? I know the transformation is possible. Yeah. I have experienced that. Yeah. But somehow enlightenment is too vague to me. Too vague. It's and, too vague. You know, it could be boom tomorrow, or it could be, I don't know, in a years, two years, yeah. galaxies. <laughs> but I know that transformation, transformation is possible. Transformation is yeah. possible, yeah. and you know that. I know that. You know that, okay. And do you have a sense, do you know that moving, continually transforming is possible? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Anybody else want to say anything about why they're in the middle here? I'd like to meet some more enlightened people, and then I think that would make me feel, or what's up, an enlightened person. I feel it's so rare that maybe just a few special people could achieve it. Uh, how do you know it's rare? <laughs> Just thought I'd throw in a little wild card. <laughs> okay. Well, so if you met an enlightened person, would I even know? Well, what would it look like for you? What would happen when you met that person? imagine I'd feel really good around them because they just have no problems and <laughs> nothing, there'd be no suffering in their world. Okay, okay, okay. Very good. And you've not met anybody like that yet? Well, well oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. And what would help you move one step nearer the courtyard? I think it's similar. I think it the belief in myself that that could be possible. Okay. As opposed to maybe other people. Okay. Okay. And standing out in the courtyard? Yes. Very good. Oh, everyone with a case on, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> no. Except a yellow case. <laughs> So, uh, anybody want to say anything about why they're in the courtyard? Because I have uh, faith in the process. Yeah, faith in the process. Yeah. yeah, you've got faith in the process. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else want to say anything? Well, also a bit like you, one gets a glimpse every now and then. Yeah. Very, very fleeting. Yeah. But I, I believe, uh, my faith is that that glimpse can become full time. Yeah. So, on the strength of those few experiences, yeah. I want to continue yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. positively. Yeah, okay, great, thank you. And can you imagine how, if you really believed that enlightenment was possible for you, how that would frame your whole life? Like, how your life would then be, the decisions you made in your life would be supporting that? Why not? 
if you really believed it was possible, surely you, it would just shape your whole, your, shape or everything you're doing. Yeah. Okay, how long have I had Ratna Gosha? About, about half an hour. <laughs> okay, I'm going to move into something else. Right, you live your life in relation to a larger story. So, uh, I'm just going to say a little short bit about Kalyana Mitchita, because um, the Buddha was a very strong Kalyana Mitchita. He was a very strong um, spiritual friend to the people that he met. And this is, uh, it's very interesting watching him in action. If you read the Pali Canon, you see him a bit in action. And he's quite good at picking up on the language that people are using. So if he meets a farmer, he uses the word, you know, uses the language of ploughing or seasonal seeds or something like that. And, um, and then he gradually moves the communication into um, a, quite a, onto quite a different level. And uh, what can I say? Um, maybe I'll just... I'm not going to spend too long on this. Uh, maybe I'll just say, uh, in the Iti- how do you say, Itavitika, uh, there's these lovely, this couple of lovely um, uh, sections where they say, the inner protector, the, per- the, the inner protector of the mind is wise attention. It's like seeing things um, in a helpful, skillful way. But the outer protector is the spiritual friend. Yeah. which is in a way like using it's somebody else's wise attention supporting you from the outside, something like that. So just make sure you've got both of those in place in your spiritual life. Wise attention on the inside, spiritual friendship on the outside. There's, um, we use this language sometimes in Tri Ratna of um, horizontal and vertical, and communication going to be horizontal. So it can be very kind of warm, communicative, um, nourishing in that respect, uh, supportive. And it can also be vertical. It can mean one has, it can make demands on us, uh, like that strong wind that I was talking about earlier. It can make demands on us, which doesn't feel nourishing necessarily. It feels demanding, challenging, uplifting. And it can light a spark in us. Um, I remember uh, Actually, when I was a, a young Mitra going on retreat with a particular Dharma Charani who I didn't know at all, and she had obviously she obviously picked up on me quite quickly, as they do, and uh, I was probably not very grounded and a bit speedy, and every time she saw me, she just went in out deep <laughs> slow. <laughs> <laughs> She did, we stood up to make an offering in the shrine room and I accidentally stood up next to her and she said to me in the queue mm-hmm. in um, <laughs> and it was totally undoing me if you know what that feels like but it was like it was just knocking the stuffing out of me it was just this one phrase I only met her a few days before and I was I was in a stage in my life where I was living on my own. I'd been living in communities for quite a long time at this point, but at this point I was living on my own, and I thought, mm, I need to move back and live with a very good friend who can give me that kind of feedback all the time. I need this. I really, really need this. This woman did send me a postcard after the retreat. And it's a picture, a lovely picture of a woman's face with eyes, 
and underneath it, you know what she wrote? <laughs> Deep, slow, yeah, indeed. That's exactly what she wrote. So Kalyana Mitratar. And we can do this for each other. All of you will be functioning in some ways as a Kalyana Mitra. And all of you could be a receipt of Kalyana Mitratar if only you ask for it, if only you, if you, if only you open yourself out for it. So in Kalana Mitra we live our lives in relation to the larger story. Um, the larger story, which is growth. Growth is what gives our life meaning. Uh, transformation is to be lived. And a meaningful life, a transformative life, is to be lived with others. Yeah. And um, it's only when we begin to share that path of transformation that we really begin to make that transformation happen. Both, you see what I mean? It's working from the inside and the outside. When we begin to voice some of our experiences, they come truer. They become more um, uh, kind of bedded in ourselves. Yeah. So do think about that. Yeah. Okay, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the symbolism of the sadhana, the meditation I took. So uh, it's a very simple meditation practice. Um, we visualize the blue sky. We visualize the Indian plains, uh, grassy, uh, uh, flat landscape around. We then visualize a tree, big Bodhi tree growing in the middle. The Buddha sitting underneath. He's holding a begging bowl. And uh, there's a kind of aura coming off him. Okay. And while we visualize him, uh, we chant the mantra. It's as simple as that. It's just as simple as that. <coughs> so I'm going to say a few things about some of the aspects of that uh, imagery and the connections that I've made. So unusually, uh, the sardana has a landscape to it. You know, you've got an actual, you've got the earth, you've got the grassland, you've got a landscape. So what I think when I see this landscape is uh, enlightenment arises amidst, amidst life. It arises within the natural human life on this planet, on this earth, as it were. And it arises out of conditions. Just like the tree arises out of conditions, the enlightened consciousness arises out of conditions. So then you've got this beautiful Bodhi tree that arises, that stands out in the middle of that landscape. And I see this Bodhi tree as conducive conditions. So all of us need supportive conditions in our life for the spiritual life. So this tree is the supportive conditions for the Buddha, shading the Buddha with these enormous branches and all its leaves. And uh, we need conducive uh, conditions for our uh, awakening to begin to happen. Of course, conducive conditions doesn't mean comfortable, necessarily. Uh, it doesn't always mean shady. Uh, it can mean heat. It can mean trouble. But we all need certain conditions for awakening to arise in us, for that consciousness to happen in us. 
for our consciousness to be changed. Then the Buddha that I visualise has got robes, um, this saffron-coloured robes. The robes, um, officially they're white, but he's rolled in the dirt of India and they've dyed into this orange, funny, dirty orange colour. And robes for me means authenticity. In other words, he's a monk or a renunciant on the outside and he's a renunciant on the inside. He's the same through and through, which is not necessarily us. That level of authenticity. He's just himself, uh, and what you look, what you see on the outside, and what you hear on from the inside is the same. Okay. And then he holds this bowl, this bowl of uh, well, of renunciation, renunciation of preferences. He receives food into the bowl and he eats what lands in his bowl. <clears throat> so how I've used this is uh, how I've used this in my life is to just do what I, what I receive in the bowl. So chair of Taraloka, problems with money, chair of Adistana, friendship with Bante. The death of Pante just goes into the bowl. That's what I do next. Yeah. That's what I eat. That's what I eat next. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is um, just face life straight on and not pick and choose too much about what, what it is and not resist too much what comes at me. You can have preferences, of course, uh, but my well-being cannot be dependent on them. And then there's this aura around the Buddha, the, the aura of understanding, the aura of positive emotion. And this can have a very profound effect, very profound effect on the world. There's this very beautiful quote um, which I'll just read from Bante, talking about the effect of meditation. He says, Usually we get bombarded by all sorts of influences and impressions, which have an unfortunate effect upon us. But when we meditate, we are generating very powerful, very positive, very skillful states. So it's as though we start to take the offensive. We become active rather than passive. We not only become positive, we become bright not only bright, but clear. It's as though we are no longer under the influence of the things that surround us, but that they are under our influence. We are like the radiant lamp dispelling the darkness. There is a heightened positivity and a stronger experience of individuality. You don't feel so crushed and overwhelmed by the world. You feel more powerful than your surroundings. The lamp is not overwhelmed by the darkness. <coughs> so this is the Buddha's aura well this is our aura our aura is much weaker than that uh, but it is possible to create a very strong um, positive aura which people pick up on well, they maybe don't always feel like they're not suffering but you can experience something coming off somebody the way they are 
their, their qualities in them, the kind of ease around them or whatever. And then there's the Buddha's mantra. So you'll know the Shakyamuni mantra. And when I was a young Mitra, I used to chant this mantra to myself a bit. And I lived in Scotland for that period. And in Scotland, you get these massive hills. And I was once standing on the top of a hill. And you've got these rolling hills, uh, well, some of the mountains all around you. And I said the mantra. Om Muni Muni Yamaha Muni Shakyamuni Swaha Om Muni Muni Yamaha Muni Shakyamuni Swaha And I thought, when you say this mantra, it never stops rolling, does it? It just keeps going. It just rolls on and on over the hills. You just set something in motion. And I thought, that's really like the Buddha's teaching. It's universal. And once the wheel of the Dharma starts turning in our lives, it just rolls on. Just rolls on over the hills, rolls on over the mountains, like that mantra. Just spins. So we live our life in relation to the larger story. So the larger story for me, and maybe for you, is that it's possible to frame one's life within a greater purpose and one that gives meaning and direction and clarity to everything that we do. And for me, that is symbolized by Shakyamuni. Yeah, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 